0: at the weather and the good news is it looks like Wednesday night or this Wednesday is going to be in the mid-60s. Doesn't that sound terrific? Uh, and uh, I, just want to, I want to invite you uh, to our Wednesday night dinner and class following and tell you a little bit about it. We've been uh, studying invisible realities on Wednesday night. We started this, this last week. Jim spoke on angels and uh, as, as the joke goes, Jim gets to do angels in heaven and I get to do demons in hell and just kind of seem natural, uh, division of power to us, good cop, bad cop. Um, and so this week I have the uh, arduous uh, task of speaking about uh, demons, which is just a, it's, it's an interesting thing. You know, I think it was both um, R.C. Sproul and C.S. Lewis had, had taken time to, to write books about demons, and both of them said that somewhere in the midst of that, that they, they kind of felt a great oppression or a darkness when they worked through that. So I started working this week on demons, and I was like, what? I'm scared. I'm kind of thinking that maybe some, some bad things are going to happen. And uh, once you know it, like, my back hurts, you know? I, I don't know what to think. I just, it's got to be a demon, right? Um, that being said, hope you'll join us. Mexican food this week, uh, a little lesson on demons and good fellowship. Uh, this morning, I want to invite you to gather around the Word of God. Uh, today, we find ourselves in the 18th chapter of Matthew. You know, there was a time in, in Matthew's Gospel where it felt like Jesus was, was moving further away from, from Jerusalem. He was, he was trying to get, get some alone time with the disciples. He was trying to get some alone time with the Father. And so he was kind of going off into these Gentile lands But that all changed after the transfiguration. You see, after the transfiguration, Jesus sets his face towards the cross. And he keeps keeps over and over again telling the disciples that uh, that he must go to Jerusalem, that he must suffer at the hands of the religious leaders there, and that he must die, and that on the third day he must be resurrected. And so um, as we move through Matthew 18, I think I just want you to be cognizant that that Jesus is moving towards Jerusalem, that he's moving towards the cross. And on the way, they stop in at the old stomping grounds of Capernaum. And Capernaum is where Peter's house is. It's where Jesus lived for the majority of his public ministry. And so, we believe that the entirety of Matthew 18 happens probably in the home of Peter there. And uh, at the beginning of Matthew 18, the, the disciples are kind of caught having a sort of debate, and if you remember the extent of the debate from talking last week, uh, it's, it's Mark's gospel that has the disciples kind of on the way to this house and they're, they're fighting about who's the greatest in the kingdom, and so they show up at the home and Jesus says, hey, what were you guys talking about? And they have to kind of confess their sins. We were talking about who's the greatest. And um, and, and so, Jesus begins his teaching and correcting to that kind of arrogance of of that fighting and arguing about over who's the greatest. And he uses an illustration. Do you remember the illustration? Because it's going to be used all throughout 18. He invites a little child over to him, and he says to the disciples, unless you have humility like this little child, you're never going to even enter the kingdom, much less be the greatest. Um, But then uh, Jesus kind of transitioned from that last week. We saw into how we should treat, and he's told the kid, little ones such as this child. And, and the child began to represent for us God's people. We kind of looked at, at that like um, this idea that the, the, the child is representing the children of God. John 1, 12 says this, But to all who receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become what? Children of, of God. That's like, it's, it's the most common way that Christians are referred to in Scripture, children of God of God. Romans 8, 14. For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. And so when this this kid's brought in, it's very clearly that he's talking about Christians. He's talking about uh, those who are God's people. When you are born again, you are a child of God. It has to do with trusting the Father like a child. It has to do with humility. It, It also has to do with Fragility. Think about how, how, how fragile and helpless and dependent we are upon the Father. And Jesus is talking to these arrogant disciples who are fighting about the greatest, and he tells them, whoever, he's holding the kid. he says, whoever causes one of the least of these little ones, or one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for them to have a great stone tied around their neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Do you remember that from last week? And Jesus says to the disciples, you got to do whatever you have to do, man. You, You have to take it seriously. If it's your eye that's causing you to sin, tear it out. If it's your hand or your foot, cut it off because it's better to have one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. And so just on, so that we're on the same page here, Jesus is commanding his disciples first to be humble and second he's warning about Causing other Christians to sin he 's talking about how we treat one another, and, and he says that the repercussions for causing another Christian or one of his children to sin is being drowned in the abyss or being thrown into the fires of hell. Neither one of those are really good illustrations for us by the way, and so we pick up the conversation from there today. My suggestion is this okay so so last week jesus was teaching his disciples about how to treat other believers, other children like this. And this week, we're going to watch as Jesus tells his disciples how to, instead of how to treat them, how to think about other believers. And so maybe for you, what you should be looking for today is clarity on how God wants you to think about other Christians. And so what's really interesting, I kind of, I think we should talk about this because some of you might be saying, Tyson, are you saying that we should have different standards for how we treat and think about Christians versus how we treat and think about non-Christians? Have you ever thought about that before? Are we supposed to treat fellow Christians better than we treat anyone else in the world? Well, here's what I know, okay? I, I know that a lot of people want to believe that every, everyone in the world is a child of God. And so when they come to this scripture, they want to interpret it that way. Uh, but that's not what the Bible says, is it? Refer back to the first verse we looked at this morning, first, or excuse me, John 1:12. "Who are children of God? Look what he says, "But to all who receive Him, who believe in His name, he gave the right to become children of God. Not everyone who's ever created, not everyone who's ever born, is a child of God, those who receive Him and believe in His name are." I know that the standards that Jesus is giving here are to apply to children of God. I also know that, that if you think about Scripture, Jesus goes to great lengths to show that the Christian's supposed to love his neighbor, right? And, and and when when Jesus talks about loving your neighbor, he's pretty inclusive with that term. Remember, he's using the idea of the Samaritan, this foreigner, definitely a non-believer, as an example, and. Um, and he, and he praises that, that good Samaritan for acting like a neighbor. So, so here's the best text I can find to summarize how you treat Christians versus how you treat your neighbors. Look at Galatians 6.10. This will be instructive for us today. It says this, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are in the household of faith. It's, it's really interesting. It's it's you be good to everybody and, and let that neighbor thing be pretty broad. But when you talk about being good to people, especially your Christian brother. As we prepare to hear the text this morning, I, I wanna give you my hypothesis. My hypothesis of, of this text is that this is Jesus telling the disciples how they are to think about God's children. If they think about God's children, if you think about other believers like this, then it will inevitably lead you to treat them well. So um, let's read together this morning. We're going to be in Matthew 18, only uh, a few short verses, 10 through 14. So I invite you to stand if you're able. And let's let's pray and... Uh, And listen well as the table is also set before us this morning. Father, um, we do pray that you would quicken our hearts by your Holy Spirit that as the word is read this morning, our fullest attention and effort would be upon it, not just in our mind, but in our soul. We pray that it would, would pierce us, convict us, expose us, and heal us. In the name of Jesus and all the church said, amen. amen. All right, friends, beginning of the 10th verse. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 who never went astray. So it's not the will of my Father who's in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Church, the grass may wither and the flowers may fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. And this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Okay, so the the key to understand this passage is context. Uh, What does Jesus say that the child represents? The child represents children of God, other believers. Jesus is instructing the disciples how to think about children of God. Verse 10, here it is, ready? See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Wow, there's, there's actually a, a whole lot to discuss in this verse. Uh, but the face value instruction of Jesus is not to despise these little ones. And, and when I think about that word despise, and I, and, I, and I look for a synonym, the word that comes to my mind is, is, is hatred, right? Despise and hatred. Uh, um, however, I, I want to look at the Greek word that, that's there for despise and, and see if we can't tease out a little bit more. See, the Greek word is, uh, is kata froneo, kata froneo. And, and it's kind of, it's like many in, in Greek words, it's, it's a compound word, and it, it kind of has two words that, that make this up. One word is that phroneo, and phroneo and has to do with the mind and thinking, and kata means down. So, if, if, if you think about kind of the, the, the building of that word, it's it's a downward thinking of someone else. It is looking down on somebody. It's thinking less of that. And, and for me, um, I'm definitely not a Greek scholar. I, and, and, I'm, and Whoever chose this word smarter than me, I have no doubt. But, but I view that word to think down on something or someone as different than, than hatred. Um, I, I think I think down on, on, on people all the time who I might not necessarily hate, right? Um, and so it's to think down upon someone and... And, and for me, that's back to this idea of where this all started. Because they're, they're talking about who's the greatest, right? And Jesus is still correcting that. And, and, and so you get this attitude where the disciples are thinking, I am obviously more important than my brother. I obviously have greater gifts. I I'm obviously have a more important calling. I, I'm obviously better looking. I'm obviously more educated. I'm, I'm obviously doing more with my life. This is how the disciples are thinking, And Jesus wants to consider some things that are going to change the way you do that. He's going to give them some some illustrations of of why they can't do that and and why you can't think down upon your brother. Consider this. And this is what he says. It blows my mind. In heaven, their angels always see the face of my father. What a strange revelation of Jesus. Jesus. And so, so first off, we can just say this, if you are wondering if angels are real, wonder no more, because Jesus tells us so, okay? Secondly, what's interesting is that angels according to, uh, these angels according to Jesus are their angels. So, so it's, it's a personal, possessive pronoun. Whose angel is that? It's their angel. Which I have to tell you, like that whole idea just, it kind of blows my mind. And, and, and this verse it, it's worked in the imagination of Christians for centuries. What does it mean that, that that children of God, that believers, have their angels that stand before the presence of the Father? Like some people have taken this verse and uh, and they've come up with this idea of guardian angels. You ever heard of a guardian angel? The idea is that is that everyone has an angel. Who is focused on them and their protection. And listen, some people have gotten confused over the the centuries by the illustration of the child, right? And they've mistakenly thought that Jesus is saying that all little children have guardian angels because they don't understand the greater symbolism of what Jesus is doing with the child because they haven't done the work that, that you and I have done over the last few weeks. We recognize that this child is a placeholder for Christians. Let me say this about angels real quick, okay? Um, the author of Hebrews says this about angels. So just, it's really great. Hebrews 1.14. Are they not all, he's talking about angels here, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So all angels are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Who are those that are going to inherit salvation? Well, it's, it's the children of God, right? What's the role of angels towards them? They're ministering towards them. They, they're serving uh, f- for their sake. Listen, your angel does not serve you. If, you know, that's not how it goes. They're, they're serving God, but they do so for your sake. And so, so I don't doubt, um, this is really insane, I don't, I don't doubt that, that angels at times might be assigned to you. Uh, in order that they might minister to you. And, and, it, and it, might, it might happen all the time, and we just don't know about it. But but I would think that something that you should know also is at the same time, the same could be said about demons. But still, I I don't really think this is exactly the point that the text is making, okay? In this verse, Jesus doesn't seem to be describing angels that are Protecting us in the earthly realm. That's not what's being described, is it? What's being described is angels in the heavenly realm in the presence of the Father. Now they're they're attributed to us, but they're they're in the presence of the Father. So, So here's how that conversation might work, right? Jesus says, before you think down upon another Christian, Consider the fact that their angel is in the presence of the Father. Do you really want to be someone who's looking down on someone who has an angel in the presence of the Father? And so Jesus, he's he's sharing, just as we are on Wednesday nights, just much more masterfully, these invisible realities that the disciples could not see. And, and, And those invisible realities should change how they view and value the other person. Now, If I was to instruct you uh, to turn in your Bible from verse 10 here, and and go ahead and look at the next verse, verse 11 with me, some of you would would turn to your Bibles and you would find verse 11. But most of you will turn to your Bibles and most of you will not find verse 11. Uh, if If you read the ESV like I do and like many of us do here, or the NIV, verse 11 will not appear. But if you read the the King James or the New King James, uh, you're you're going to certainly find verse eleven, and and I need to do some work to explain why it appears in some Bibles and why it does not appear in others. Um, one of the things that, that continues to happen is that uh, we do archaeology, and biblical scholars continue to collect and they continue to catalog manuscripts. Uh, manuscripts are are ancient copies of the word of god and sometimes they're on papyrus, sometimes they're on pieces of clay sometimes they're on scrolls and th- they collect them and then people do the great work of dating them and storing them and protecting them one of the I, I can remember when i was at princeton one of the things they were doing is they were updating the library and spending like 20 million dollars on a new library And you go like well how wasteful to spend 20 million dollars on a new library just to store books well the truth is not only did they store books but they stored a lot of manuscripts, and they cared for them. And you can imagine someone with rubber gloves, and, and they're dusting off something, and they're, they're keeping things in airtight things so that they don't fade away and, and, and fall apart. Uh, and, and what's amazing is when they, they compare all these manuscripts written over thousands and thousands of years, all those manuscripts are 99.999% unchanging, there's no differences in them the consistency through the ages it's just amazing and that was that was also by the way that that was what was so cool about the dead sea scrolls is is that when they 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 found these really old complete versions of scripture and they popped them open and they've been untouched by the hands of men for for thousands of years and they went you know what it's the same. And, and for us, that was a great confidence in the Word of God, in the unchanging Word of God. Uh, and, and really, one of the things that, that, that keeps the Word of God from changing outside of the sovereignty of God is just the fact that there are so many copies. It's, it's like if you wanted to, to rewrite... Uh, national lampoon's christmas vacation you could do it and you could say this is how the movie goes and everyone else would be like no i watch that every year there it's, it's been i've seen it a thousand times that's not how it goes it's the same way with scripture if someone wanted to change the bible over here there's just too many copies that exist and every year we find more and more of these manuscripts right and we grow in confidence in the unchanging word of god now if you know anything about the king james bible you know that there are some people who love them some king james bible right we know that. There are some people who, who proclaim that the King James Bible is the only Bible you should be using. It's just, it's, just, it's, it's unadulterated, right? Well, when was it published? 1611, okay? Six, that's a long time ago, right? And, and the best manuscripts that were available in 1611, when they, when they looked at all the ones they had, included verse 11, okay? Now, what I'm suggesting is that somehow in the last 500 years, we've discovered a lot of other manuscripts. Dead Sea Scrolls being one of them, just just lots of other manuscripts. And and those older manuscripts consistently do not contain verse 11, okay? It appears that what has happened is that at some point in time, some well-meaning scribe added verse 11. And, uh, and, and so what we're going to do is we're going to read verse 11 out of the New King James Version just so we all know what it says, okay? All right, so, so here's verse 11 out of the New King James. For the Son of Man has come to save that which is lost. So you, you might ask me how to think about this. You might say something like, Tyson, is this the Word of God or, or is it not? Bottom line, this is a very easy question to answer. This is the Word of God because what's interesting about this line is it actually is luke 19:10. 10 okay it, it's actually just plucked from another part of the scriptures right it's it, it some some somebody who was doing the translations probably said boy this line luke 19 10 fits really well with this story and so they moved it over there they they decided that it fit well and and some scribe took a liberty which was not afforded to him. And, 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 and so, what has happened is, is we can look back and see that the translations and all these manuscripts prior to, you know, uh, prior to whatever this one was written um, don't have this. And we've, we've agreed as scholars and as a Christian community that, that this, this verse does not belong here. So, um, I don't want us to get lost in this today, but I wanted to explain to you maybe the difference between why that was not in an ESV Bible. Um, Let's look at verse 12 together. We'll just go ahead and move on. Jesus says this, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? This is the, uh, you know, this is the parable of the lost sheep. Uh, who, who's the shepherd in this illustration? It's, it's, it's Jesus. That's, that's an easy answer, right? Who are the 99 in this illustration? They they represent the the children of God who stay close to the shepherd, right? And and um, not that not that they're like more righteous or more moral than the other sheep, but but they stay close to the shepherd. There's an intimacy. For us, we might say these are people who have an active walk with the Lord. They're they're, they're following the shepherd. They know his voice. They have a prayer life. They they have a church family. They sit under the word of God regularly. They're, They're an active part of the flock and they're connected to the good shepherd, right? Well, then, who is the lost sheep? The lost sheep is, and this is really important that we understand this, it's not. The non-believer. This isn't a verse about evangelism. The lost sheep is the child of God, the Christian, who has wandered away from the flock. They've gone astray. Maybe they just have gone off a little bit at a time until they are so far away from the shepherd and the flock. And so I guess my question for you is, um, do you know someone who's a lost sheep? I think most of us do. Do you know someone who belongs to the the shepherd, but they've wandered away from the flock? You know what? I, I, don't, uh, I don't think people always know when they're lost. I don't think sheep always know that they're lost. I think there's some people who think they're fine when they are far from the shepherd. But let me assure you that, that, that sheep without a shepherd... Is a meal for a wolf, but here 's what 's beautiful. Jesus says um, that though the sheep are prone to wander, the shepherd will leave the ninety nine to find the one and, and, and listen don't don 't miss this because this is one of the most beautiful passages in all of scripture because it describes our tendency to wander from our relationship to Christ, and, and what does Christ do? Look again at verse 12. He says this, what do you think? If, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? He goes in search of us when we go astray. And you know what's funny is that sometimes sin in our lives, you know what it, it does to us? It, us? it makes us hide from God. You recognize that? that I don't, I don't know, maybe you've done that in your life. You, you've got some sin, and uh, you don't want to be seen by God while you're sinning, and, and you kind of find yourself at the window pulling the shades, like well, maybe God won't see through that. You, you remember in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned, I think you remember this, they, 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 they hid from God. That's what they did. They, they sinned, they know they've sinned, and God's looking for them, and they're, they're hiding, they're, which is silly. Look at Genesis 3.8. It says this. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. It's shame. That's what it is. We feel shame, we hide from God. And it's it's funny. How do you hide from God? You can't, right? The psalmist knew that he couldn't hide from God. Look at Psalm 139, 7, and 8. This, he, he's, he's dealing with this. He's saying, uh, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in shale, you are there. Now, to the sinner, the idea that you can't hide from God seems just terrifying. And you're concerned about his judgment and his wrath. And friends who are not, like, like people, people who are not children of God, people who, who do not believe in him, who, who have not been given the right to, to be children of God, need to be worried about his wrath. But if you are a child of God, if, if you have been born again, if his spirit is inside you, the fact that you cannot hide from God should not be terrifying to you. It should be comforting. Because you understand that, that, that Jesus is the good shepherd, and he searches for us when we wander, and he always finds us. That's what this verse is about. But, but, because you can't be hidden from him, so he always finds you. In 1941, a little boxing illustration here, when uh, Joe, or excuse me, Joe Lewis fought Billy Kahn. Like, Billy Kahn was, was known to be a Uh, quick in the ring. He had fast feet. And and Joe Lewis was known, you know, longtime heavyweight champion, was known to be just a monster. Joe Lewis would put you to sleep with one punch. And Billy Kahn got in the ring with him, and he, he just kept moving so fast. And do you remember the famous Joe Lewis line? He said, you can run, but you can't hide. So it is with the sheep of the shepherd. We can run, but we can't really hide. From him. Verse 13 says this, and if he finds us, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 who never went astray. Jesus rejoices when his lost sheep are found. I don't I don't think the point is to get lost in the figure of speech. There's a figure of speech that says uh, more than the 99 who ever wandered right, or wandered, excuse me. And I, and I think that's just a figure of speech. I think you need. to to be re on the context to maybe understand why he might say it that way. The context is arrogant disciples. They're arguing over who's the greatest. And Jesus says here, he's talking about how they should think about children of God. Not only the angels, their angels sit in the presence of the Father, but, but if they did happen to wander, guys, if, if one of my little ones happened to wander, I would chase after them. So before you think down on them, consider how I think about them. Consider the angels before the Father, so yes, I mean, like on one hand, this is a beautiful parable about how Jesus pursues the lost, but it's, it, it, the reason it's told is to communicate to these arrogant feuding disciples how much Jesus loves those whom they might think down upon, right? And so you can see how Jesus might say to the arrogant disciples, I'd I'd rejoice more for the wanderer who who you look down upon than than upon 99 people who never strayed. He's not diminishing his love for the disciples, but he wants them to understand his love for the wanderer. Verse 14. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Interesting verse, isn't it? Interesting verse if you're a reformer. Uh, A lot of people have come to this verse and they say that this disproves the doctrine of election. The the doctrine of of election is something like this. It says something along the lines of that before the foundation of of time, uh, God elected some to be his children. And one of the clearest places we find the doctrine of election is in Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. We'll just read it together. Ready? Even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world. So when did God do the choosing? It's before creation, right? It's before the foundations of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he what? He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So, so just recap, before the foundations of the world, he chose us that we might be blameless. He predestined us for adoption as his children. And, and so some people will come to verse 14 and say, there can't be election because verse 14 says that it, it's, it's, it's not the will of the Father that anyone would perish. But that's not exactly what it says, is it? Look at it again. Verse 14, so it's not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Jesus holding the child in his lap. The child is the placeholder for what? Children of God. Christians, believers, those who have been born again. Those who have been, by the way, predestined for adoption to him through Jesus Christ. Let me summarize all the work we've done today. Jesus is teaching his disciples How to think about children of God. See that you do not despise, think down upon these little ones. Their angels are before the Father. And if they were to wander, I would go after them, and I would rejoice more when I found them. What a great truth. We have a Savior who pursues wanderers. Christ pursues those who wander this very morning. The big message for us is is how to think about other Christians And I think this is what you need to hear. Think down upon them at your own peril. The challenge is is to see other believers as God sees them. Precious, valuable, the way a father looks upon his children. Now the table is set before us today. It reminds us of the depths of God's love. That he loved his children so much That not only did he just go searching for them, but he laid his life down for them, which is just another reason for us to value other Christians. Not only did the Good Shepherd go out to find them, he became their atoning sacrifice. So, what I want to encourage you to do this morning is to take a moment to prepare your heart to eat from the Lord's table. In doing so, I encourage you to consider your sin, I encourage you to consider your relationships. Do you need to seek forgiveness somewhere? Let's take a moment to prepare our hearts. Will you you pray with me, Father, um, as we prepare to come and eat from your table? I pray now that uh, you hear the silent confessions of our heart.